Amen. Thanks, Austin. Uh, good morning. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I realize it's 11 o'clock now, so it's cl- bordering on lunch, but still morning time. Um, hopefully we don't have a, a repeat of the first service where everything just went, you know, like died, all the sound and everything. So then I started yelling. That didn't go too well. Um, I do apologize for the, uh, <laughs> somebody, somebody mentioned this and I mentioned it in the first service. Uh, if you've ever seen one of those old uh, Bruce Lee movies where, uh, you know, it was originally done in a different language and they dub English over it, that's kind of how that video felt. Um, I promise you that Patrick worked very hard on that video, uh, and he did not intentionally do that to make me look stupid. Um, there's something to do with the delay, and, and uh, but anyway, that's going to be up on our social media platforms and so forth, and so if you watch it again, I promise, like, the words and, you know, the lip movements are matching and all that stuff, so anyway, uh, just, uh, just wanted, to, wanted to apologize for that. Uh, we're back today in, we spent two weeks uh, meditating on Palm Sunday and Easter and the significance of those in the life of the church, which is obviously huge. And so we're coming back to Hebrews 11, the series we've been in uh, for some time now, uh, looking at faith, by faith, by faith, this person, by faith, that person. And this morning we come to Joseph, okay? Uh, and I'm going to read one verse from Hebrews 11. Uh, You can follow along on the screen, or it's on the insert in your worship folder. Uh, The Pew Bible, if you want, the page numbers are there, or the Bible uh, that you have with you from home. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 22, and then Genesis chapter 50, uh, reading from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, actually. So hear God's word. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And then from Genesis, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be, made, should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is God's word. Uh, So as we have been uh, doing now since uh, the beginning of the year, we've been looking at Hebrews 11, walking through Old Testament figures who are highlighted in Hebrews 11 by their faith. Not so much... 
uh, as we have said over and over again, it's not so much the hall of faith idea. These, these figures weren't necessarily exceptional. In fact, many of them had some questionable characteristics, but more so because of what follows in chapter 12. The Hebrews writer says, let us also. So we're being encouraged to imitate the faith that we see in the midst of the suffering and the struggles that these folks endured in their lives and using, uh, using Hebrews 11 as a framework. So what, we're going to look at this one verse uh, from Hebrews 11 through the lens of Genesis 50, uh, which is the very last scene of the book. And you'll see the outline there. It's on the back of uh, what I just read there uh, on the insert. First, fear, looking at Joseph's brothers and his, or excuse me, their posture toward him. What's revealed in their posture? What's, what do we learn about ourselves as we look at them? And then contrasting that with Joseph. What does Joseph teach us about how to understand the silence of God? The, the, how does Joseph understand the meaning of his life through the mystery of his suffering? Or the mystery of his life through the meaning he finds in his suffering. You can kind of play it both ways there. And then lastly, where do you get a faith like that? Because we all need it. And dare I say, maybe even want it. So how do you get it? Where's the power come from? Okay. So uh, those three things first, uh, beginning, uh, beginning with fear, the way his brothers approach him says a lot about their understanding of life and of forgiveness Uh, how they view the world, they say, look at verse 15, when they saw his father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. They fear his revenge because in their world, it's eye for eye, skin for skin, right? In verse 18, they offer themselves to him as slaves. They say, we'll pay you back by slaving for you. Please just don't kill us. Because in their world, there's no understanding, uh, no, no appreciation for grace. They don't believe in unconditional grace. They don't believe in a forgiveness that absorbs the wrongs done to it. This is their attitude, and get this, this is their attitude after 17 years of living in the land of Goshen. Why is that significant? Because 17 years, what were you doing 17 years ago? For 17 years, his brothers and their families have been living in Goshen and they have been provided for. They have not starved. Their uh, livestock and all their animals have been cared for. Their families have been living the high life, in a sense, because of their brother's provision. And so 17 years of this, and they still don't believe his heart. They still don't believe that he's for them. They think, hmm, Our sin is unforgivable. There's no way that Joseph's going to get past it. And in fact, he's been holding a grudge this whole time, and he's been nice to us because dad has been alive. But now dad's dead. The real Joseph's going to come out. Watch out. They're scared. And they're scared because they don't believe. You know, it reminded me of the younger brother. The younger brother in Jesus' parable, the two sons, he had a very similar posture He really screwed up. He comes back to his dad. He says, dad, I don't deserve to be a son. He's scared his father is is going to write him out of everything, write him off, right? You're no longer a son to me. And so he gets his speech and he says, I'll be a slave for you. And how does his dad respond to that? Shh, 
We won't talk like that. We don't talk like that around here. There'll be none of that, right? He says, no, my heart for you is the same as it was when you left, right? And the problem is that's the posture of most of us toward God. In fact, that's the posture of most religions or most worldviews. They, they approach God or the gods or however you want to say that, thinking that their sin, their, their, their life, what they've done that's, that's wrong or uh, where they have sinned against others is unforgivable. And the gods or God is on a mission to pay them back. And so because they're riddled with fear, because we're riddled with fear, we work to pay him back. We try to be good, moral, nice, but when we mess up or life doesn't make sense or doesn't work out, there's this fear that's lingering and it resurfaces and we think, yep, here he goes. He's paying me back for all my bad behavior, right? And when suffering happens, we assume that there is a God or there are gods who are punishing us and there's maybe even lingering doubts that he even exists and those doubts grow stronger because of suffering. And to be a Christian, though, is to say, on the other hand, I can't pay you back, God. There's nothing I can offer to make up for how corrupt and wicked I am. There's no amount of good I can do to make up for all the bad I've done. That's the attitude of his brothers. It, it, it often, though, is our posture toward one another as well. When we sin against one another, uh, we remain in the debt of those we've hurt because we think, oh, surely they could never forgive me for this. Why is that? Well, maybe because there's times where we struggle to forgive others for those very same things. And we, we may just give up. We may just consign ourselves to a life of, of loneliness because, well, we're never going to measure up to the standards of others. And we certainly haven't measured up to God's standards or anyone else's. So we sort of make them up for ourselves or we, that's kind of the irreligious way. The religious way is to hold one another to higher standards than even God himself does. And that brings us even to this table this morning as we celebrate communion to examine our lives to see where might we have been withholding forgiveness from someone in our life who needs it, who, if we have been forgiven much, right, where would we not have the ability or the desire or the, the, the want to to forgive them. Joseph's brothers are full of fear and their fear is because they don't believe. So contrast that with Joseph. And uh, this is kind of the meat and potatoes uh, of the sermon. That first point's kind of like the vegetarian or vegan uh, section. This is the meat and potatoes section, okay? That was supposed to be a joke. Didn't work in the first service. <laughs> Didn't work in this service. Maybe worked online if things hadn't blown up at that point. Yeah, yeah. Joe said it. Maybe got some likes, some thumbs up online or something like that. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Well, anyway, it's the meat and potatoes, okay? Let's contrast Joseph with his brothers. What's unique about the story of Joseph is that beginning in chapter 37 of the book of Genesis all the way to the end, because that's, that's the story of Joseph, okay? From, from 37 all the way to 50. God is behind the scenes. He's backstage. Uh, and it's unique because there are no recorded words of God for the rest of the book. In fact, the dream of Joseph in chapter 37 is the first dream recorded in Scripture where God doesn't speak. And Bible scholars use the word providence to describe this feature of God. It's God's hiddenness. And Christianity teaches, although God is hidden, 
He's also in complete control. And so the root of the word providence is provision or to provide. And when we use the word, we're not talking about chance. We're not talking about blind luck. We're not talking about impersonal, something impersonal, quite the opposite. So a definition to consider is one from the Heidelberg Catechism. This is question number 27. And it goes like this. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come not to us by chance, but from his fatherly hand. And did you catch all of that? That's a mouthful. But the... The authors say that food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all of it comes not by chance, but from his fatherly hand, everything. Now, if you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian or sort of considering Christianity, let me say this, in no way, shape or form are we suggesting and no way, shape or form is the Heidelberg Catechism saying that God is capricious or willy-nilly or some sort of absentee landlord. Providence doesn't lead to that because foundational to the idea of providence, it's in the definition, fatherly care. Okay, so the things in our lives don't come to us by chance or by some absentee landlord. They come from a father who has a caring hand. So let's look at, there's three ways, three examples of how Joseph interprets God's providence in his life significant things in his life where he draws meaning out of the mystery of his sufferings, okay? So number one, Genesis chapter 41. It's not printed for you there, and uh, you don't have to look it up now. If you want to go back later, that's great, but it's where he names his children. And you realize Joseph was uh, propelled up to sort of second in command. He's Pharaoh's right-hand man, and he married an Egyptian priestess, or he was given an Egyptian priestess to marry. Do you hear that? This was a woman whose job it was to facilitate and make sure that the Egyptians knew how and what to do to worship the gods and goddesses of Egyptian religion. In other words, she did not worship Yahweh. That was his wife. Okay? So kids, teenagers, missionary dating, bad idea. Okay? This is an example. That was supposed to be funny too. But... You guys are, whew, man, tough today. Anyway, when he names his children, it proves he hadn't become an Egyptian because he names them Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. He draws attention to God and his work through the naming of his children. So the first name, Manasseh, he says, God's faithfulness to me has led me to forget my affliction. It's not the focus of his thoughts any longer. The second name is particularly striking, Ephraim. What does Ephraim mean? Ephraim means God has borne fruit in the place of affliction. So where Joseph was enduring affliction, God has borne fruit for him, in this case, literally out of him. So you may be in the place of affliction right now. Is it hard to even think there might be fruit being born out of it? Whatever it looks like right? More often than not, when I'm in a place or period of affliction, and you might be able to relate to this, all I can think about is the affliction. 
my mind is not considering what fruit or what byproduct might happen as a result of this occurring. Me going through it, my family going through it, a friend of mine going through it, whatever it might be. But Joseph remembers the Lord. His life isn't governed by blind chance. It's, it, it's really incredible to consider, given all he's been through. So you fast forward four chapters later in Genesis 45. And in four verses in Genesis chapter 45, God says, excuse me, Joseph says, God sent me three times. Now, what's the context? Well, he says, God sent me to prison. God sold me into slavery. God put me in Potiphar's house where I was falsely accused of trying to seduce Potiphar's wife. For what purpose? You ask, why on earth would God send him to those places? Well, in Genesis 45, verse 7, Joseph says, to preserve for you, this is the purpose, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. See, Joseph understood something about God's providence I think we often miss. We tend to think of it only in terms of what is God doing in my life for me, right? Rather, what is God doing in my life for you or for others, we usually are, are just very individual about it. We're, we're, we're very sort of self-referential about it. And here's what's astounding. Joseph is saying, if I hadn't been sold into slavery and imprisoned, lives would have been lost. The remnant of Israel would have been destroyed. There were a million tiny coincidences that brought Joseph to this, uh, to this place in his life. But see, faith doesn't see an impersonal fate or chance, but faith sees the invisible care of a father in heaven who's never asleep, never aloof, never absent from each present moment. So what do you do when you only see a minuscule fraction, you know, the one half of 1% of what God is doing in your life and that tiny bit doesn't make any sense? Well, that's where most of us live anyway, right? I mean, if, you, if you've got a broader vision of like 5 or 10% of what God's doing in your life, I, we need to eat together this next week. Because I would love to know how you're determining that. There's a million things going on, right? Always a million things. John Piper said it this way. He was a writer and former pastor in Minneapolis. He said, God is always doing 10,000 different things in your life, and you're probably only aware of about three of them, Right? So where is his providence most mysterious in your life right now? What is he doing? What are you enduring? What place of affliction are you in that is most confusing? The ironic thing is, for most of us, we answer that question according to what he hasn't provided, where his providence hasn't come through for us, rather than answering it according to what he has provided or where his providence has come through. So where has he provided? What has he provided that's most difficult to understand? What provision has he made in your life that doesn't make sense? Let me ask it that way. Well, these are, these are hard examples, but they're hard on purpose. What if his provision is chronically ill, aging parents, a life of singleness, and a $10 an hour job? What if it's a severely autistic child or a divorced brother who needs a place to live and a boss that you can't please? The question in those kinds of circumstances, which just one of those by itself is painful 
and difficult enough, right? Not to mention all three. But the question is not, where is God in all this? The question is, what is God doing? What is he up to? Because, well, according to the Bible, he he is there, right? And all things, says the catechism, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Joseph says, God sent me to these places. God put me in these situations for the purpose of saving you, for the purpose of blessing you, for the purpose of providing for you. Now, lastly, let's look at the verses from your insert there. There's uh, three of them. Chapter 50, 19, 20, and 21. And even if you're new to the Bible or, or the Bible's relatively unfamiliar to you, you may have heard uh, this phrase, what God meant for good or what you meant for evil, God meant for good or something like that. It's kind of famous. But Joseph's saying, in God's economy, there is a great reversal, always, because what we think is good uh, can actually become evil, and, and, and what we think is evil can actually be used for good. I mean, Jesus said you have to lose your life to save it, and the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So the great reversal is the way of, well, God's reality, right? It's how he does things. And so in chapter 50, they say, am I, or Joseph says rather, am I in the place of God? He's essentially saying that only God can ultimately forgive his brothers for their sins. But he's also saying they need to realize the same God Joseph has been trusting all these years is worthy of their trust as well. And when you consider Joseph's life over probably about a 20-year period. It's so hard when you read the Bible, particularly Genesis, because you'll read a statement. It'll say, 18 years later, blah, 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 next chapter. 26 years later, blah, 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 blah. All this time is passing, and you and I are reading it within, you know, like three minutes. So it's really hard to wrap your mind around. But over about a 20-year period, Joseph's requests were consistently met with a no from God. Deliverance from the pit, deliverance from Potiphar's wife, deliverance from prison, even deliverance possibly from Egypt where he knew they worshipped all these other gods. They didn't worship the Lord. Despite all those years, he trusted God. And the writer says, throughout all those years, the Lord was with Joseph. And the lesson is, very often God does not give us exactly what we ask for. Instead, He gives us what we would have asked for if we had known everything he knows. Okay? God does not give us exactly what we ask for very often or most often. Some of you are thinking, never gives me what I ask for, right? But instead, he gives us what we would have asked for if we had known everything he knows. Now, these three verses, they have enormous implications for us when we're facing confusing dark times or if we're facing betrayal, let's say, maybe at the hands of others, family, friends, and the reason is because for the modern world, this, the cultural air that we breathe can be summarized this way when it comes to suffering. I found this quote, I don't know who said it, but it's really, really profound given where we live right now. It says this, quote, suffering is separated from the narrative structure of human life. It's a kind of noise, an accidental interference into the drama of the sufferer. Suffering has no intelligible relation to any plot except as a chaotic interruption. 
So either life is going good and therefore God or the gods or, you know, the, the whatever is good or life is bad and therefore God is bad and he's not there. But not for Joseph. He doesn't view suffering that way. He doesn't view his life that way. His divinely inspired perspective held two things in tension that just the human perspective can't and doesn't. It won't. He says, in effect, on the one hand, life is filled with pain. And yet he also says, God is good. And he assumes that the suffering he endured all these years had a point. Because, in general, God's goodness comes to us through experiences of difficulty and weakness. Joseph believed that behind everything that happened was the goodness and love of God. I mean, the Apostle Paul says as much, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 8? Very famous words, all things work together for good to them who love God. Paul doesn't say when or how they're going to work together for good. Why? Because he doesn't know. All he knows is they do. A few chapters back in Romans 5, and we read this in our uh, reading of the law this morning, and we're memorizing Romans 5.1 this month uh, as a church, Paul does give us some insight into how we can know all things, he says, even suffering, that are not interruptions for us to just grin and bear. He says we can actually rejoice because our suffering is producing endurance, which is producing character, which is producing hope. Now, you tell me, who doesn't want those three things? You tell me, does our society not, does our culture not hunger for enduring, character-filled, hope-filled people? And what the Bible tells us is, what Christianity says is, suffering shapes us into the mold of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ himself. Look at the assurance of pardon from 2 Corinthians 4. There's some really astonishing stuff here. And I, I thought of Joseph uh, this week in reading it. The Apostle Paul says, suffering does two things. It renews us and it prepares us. Uh, Paul said, or, think of it this way through the grid of, of Joseph's experience. As Joseph suffered more and more, his heart was being anchored in things that couldn't be shaken or taken away. He was growing in things like Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, humility. Do those things sound familiar? They should. They're the fruit of the Spirit. Nothing was increasing those things in him more than his afflictions and the knowledge and dependence on God that they brought him to. Nothing was increasing those things in him more than his afflictions. So suffering renewed him, but it also prepared him. Paul says... Uh, we don't lose heart, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul is not saying that if the more you suffer, the greater reward you will earn. He's saying suffering is cultivating something in us that we need to receive the glory that awaits us. He's saying things like a joy that's unaffected by changing circumstances, things like inner humility and wisdom and joy and strength, those things are unavailable except through experiences of weakness that can finally bring us to rely on God's grace. And here's just a reminder for you, or maybe it's a newsflash, Christianity is the only thing that can bring you 
and make you a person like that. It's the only worldview, the only religion, the only way of viewing reality that has the resources to give people to make them like that. I've been reading some of John Newton's pastoral letters. He was a minister in England in the 1700s. He wrote a hymn called Amazing Grace, if you're not familiar with him. Uh, But he wrote this to a woman in his village whose sister was terminally ill. He says, quote, your sister's illness grieves me. And were it in my power, I would quickly remove it. The Lord can, and I hope will, when it has answered the end for which he sent it. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Above all, keep close to the throne of grace. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, we may be sure we shall get none by keeping away from him. See, if the story of Joseph and the rest of the Bible is true, then anything that comes into your life, anything that comes into your life is something that, as painful as it is, you in some way need. And anything you desire that does not come from him, even if you're absolutely positively sure you can't live without it, you don't really need. So how do we get this perspective? And that's where we finish. Only by faith, right? Only by faith. By faith, Joseph... I want to read uh, Genesis 50, 19 to 20, but I want to read it from the Jesus Storybook Bible, right? That never grows old. Joseph threw his arms around them. Don't be afraid, he said. Behind what you were doing, underneath everything that was happening, God was doing something good. God was making everything right again. And what Joseph's words point us to is they point us to another prince who was uh, hated by his brothers and betrayed and sold for silver, who would leave his home and his father, who would be punished unjustly, and that's Jesus himself, who says, my imprisonment, my suffering, my affliction, my betrayal, God the Father meant for your good to bring it about that you would be made alive. He says, you can't make a payment great enough to secure forgiveness from God, but I can. And faith in me and the payment I made will ensure your forgiveness and it will destroy your fear. He can bring good out of even death. And if he can do that, can't he be trusted? I mean, we're in Easter season after all. We've just spent a couple of weeks meditating on that and celebrating that last Sunday on Easter. Even in the death of his one and only son, he's working good through evil. Joseph on his deathbed, the writer in Hebrews says, right? By faith, Joseph. Go back. It's just one verse. At the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. He had a confidence at the end of his life. He made mention of the exodus because suffering doesn't negate the promises of God because on the other side of suffering is always, on the other side of death is always what? In Jesus, with Jesus, in God's economy, there's always resurrection. Right? Joseph knew this from his own life because he had experienced a resurrection to a place of greatness and redemptive influence where he could save many lives, but it only could come through the death of all his hopes and dreams in the prisons of Egypt. Joseph doesn't tell them how God's going to bring them up out of Egypt into the promised land. His faith simply gives him confidence in the promise of God to do that because he He knew God swore to Abraham, our forefather, and he's continued to keep his word all the way through. God will visit you. God will surely visit you. 
Well, how long did it take God to get around to visiting them? Does anybody know? You can talk in church. This isn't being recorded. 430 years. 430 years. Okay? Yes, it's getting darker outside. I just noticed that. But he did visit them, right? And he brought them up out of Egypt in the most amazing of rescues. But how often during that 430 years do you think Joseph's great, 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 great grandchildren sat around the fire at night and said to their parents and their aunts and uncles, has God forgotten us? Remember what Joseph said when he died? Will God visit us? I mean, we have Joseph's bones. They're right over there. Is he, is, does he remember us? Has he forgotten us? Well, what did Israel need to hear? They needed to hear, the Lord is with you, as he was with Joseph. In the pit, in the palace, in the prison, everywhere. He, they needed to hear the Lord is faithful, that he's always working, that his plans can't be thwarted, that he can be trusted. They needed to see, look at how he's kept his word to his people all these years. So even though they were wondering where he was and what he was doing over those 430 years, he had his eye on them. He was with them. He was for them. So the question is, what are you facing? What plains of Moab are you standing on, overlooking or preparing for a task that seems daunting and impossible? Where you're wondering, where is God? What is he preparing me for? Why has he led me to this place? And I would just encourage you with this. It was faith that gave Joseph the ability to reinterpret. He had to reinterpret the unkindness and cruelty that his brothers inflicted upon him as a good design from God to save them through him. John Newton says, again, from one of his letters, for the Christian, faith upholds him under all trials, by assuring him that every dispensation is under the direction of his Lord, that the season, measure, and continuance of his sufferings are appointed by infinite wisdom and designed to work for his everlasting good. And the message to us is no different, except we get the benefit of seeing and knowing God's ultimate visit in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Unlike Joseph, unlike Israel that had to wait 430 years or in the wilderness waiting 40 years, you don't have to wait for him to act. He's already proven himself. Will you believe? Whether you're in the midst of a, of a time in your life that doesn't make sense, whether you're disoriented, confused, or on the other hand, everything feels like it's going pretty well and you know where you're going on the whole or you're somewhere in between, which is where most of us probably are, Know this, if your faith is in Jesus, if you've been justified by faith, put your hope in God. Because it's a hope that won't put you to shame, Paul says. It won't disappoint. And the reason it won't is because it flows from the fountain of the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love of God, the God of the universe. Poured into your heart by and through the Holy Spirit. And that is what gives meaning to life even suffering. So let's pray and ask him for this faith as we come to the table. Oh, Father, we believe, help our unbelief. We, we, we long to see fear eradicated in our lives as we, uh, as we saw last week. You tell us 
You told the, the first witnesses to your resurrection to not be afraid, but to go and tell. And we thank you for the faith of Joseph and what he shows us even in a life where he endured so much affliction. And yet he continued even to the end to say, God will surely visit you. God is faithful to you. And so give us the grace and the faith and the sight to walk by faith and not by sight, yes, but the faith sight to see where you're working, to have confidence that you are continuing to work and to know that no matter what plains of Moab we are looking out over, you will work for our good and for your glory into the future, we pray. Do this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I think it's raining outside, so if you do need an umbrella, we have some in the hallway right here. If you want to come through this way and grab one, <clears throat> or you can exit out this door, and if you want to send a brave soul to come get you, <laughs> you can do it that way too, okay? So receive this benediction. Uh, whatever it is that you're going out to face, this is the promise weekly, okay? May this sink down, rest like cement in the bottom of your soul, and solidify, secure you uh, into this week that as you go, God goes with you. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.